You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. Hey, Power Athlete Nation. We have a special episode of Power Athlete Radio in studio with Mr. Mark Ripito. He's an American strength coach, author, former power lifter, and gym owner of Wichita Falls Athletic Club in Wichita Falls, Texas. He's best known for his barbell training programs and his series of books, Starting Strength, Basic Barbell Training. He's known for traveling and teaching and being just an incredibly polarizing individual in the world of strength conditioning that tends to be full of polarizing people. Mark is one of those people that's chipped out on the Mount Rushmore strength conditioning and has done more for developing individuals that are first approaching a barbell with his book, Starting Strength. Um, we've been friends for a number of years through our both involvement in CrossFit in the early days. And we have a excellent conversation where we got to sit down for a couple hours and chop it up. Um, I hope you're as excited to listen to it as I was to do it, Mr. Mark Ripto. Over the 47 years I've been doing this, and I've made every fucking mistake that can possibly be made in a gym, every single mistake I made, I have made two, just like these people continue to make. But one of my advantages is that I seem to be able to understand, hey, I made a mistake, and this didn't work, and maybe something else needs to be done. So the situation is that all throughout athletics, all throughout, from peewee football to the uh, retiring pro, no one seems to be able to tell the difference between a guy whose training was shit, but he succeeded anyway, and a guy whose training was exactly the way it ought to be, but because of a lack of genetic endowment, nobody knows who he is. Right? I mean, you walk into a, 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 a locker room full of guys with 32-inch verticals, 32-inch verticals and up, and you are a strength and conditioning coach, and you work with these guys for four years. It looks like you know what the hell you're doing, whether you do or not. It's called the curse of the gifted. Yes. It's, Where if it's, you take the world's best athletes, you can have them play a fucking snare drum and they're going to get better. Right. Exactly the case. And the... What people do not understand is the strength and conditioning coach didn't build the team. The recruiter built the team. The recruiter is the one that puts the 32-inch verticals in the locker room. Yeah. And this is, if you don't recognize that as, a, as the primary contributing factor, then you, you have no ability to discern what to quit doing and what to start doing because you don't know what's not working. You don't know what the hell's not working. Well, it's not like you Because everything looks like it works. Well, it's not like you can take somebody with a 20-inch vertical, and we've talked about the vertical jump being a great determining factor for power and generating force and athleticism. But it's not like you can take somebody that has a 20-inch vertical and train them for four years into a 32-inch vertical. No, can't be done. Yeah. Can't be done. 22, a 20 might go to 23, maybe. But probably not. Probably not. And if, but if the guy walks in off the street with a 32, 
He's just walking around with a 32-inch vertical. We can do something with him. Yeah. And this is why not everybody plays in the NFL. This is all throughout athletics. People want to pretend as though anybody can do high-level athletic performance, and that's absolutely not true. Are you talking about the athletes or are you talking about the coaches? I'm talking about the athletes. I'm talking not the athletes know better than that. The athletes don't they? They know better than that. But the but the fans and the coaches and the front office and everybody else is involved in this charade. And it's it's the same thing as bodybuilding worked off of for 40 years. If you buy this magazine and you do Frank Zane's routine, you're gonna look like Frank Zane. No, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> that's not. Frank Zane was born Frank Zane, and yeah. that's why he looks like Frank Zane. And his training had very little to do with it. And you know, to the extent that Dorian Yates' training had something to do with his success, it was because the fucking guy was benching sets of six and seven reps with over 500 pounds. Yeah. Incline benching. Yeah. And, and he trained in such a style that, like, I don't believe very many people could try. I mean, I no, no, no. He was he was a guy could recover from yeah. a whole bunch of times. But he also uh, wasn't a junk volume guy, you know. Whereas you look no. at like Arnold. I mean, we we had Jay Cutler on the podcast. You know what right. he did? Four sets of twelve. Oh god, that was it. Everything was and, four and sets of twelve because he was Jay Cutler. Well, he's Jay Cutler. He also consumed more calories, and uh, I just think that maybe more anabolic receptors. Well, you know. Well, that's not even need to be discussed. I mean, it's that's just assumed. But if you can recover from all of that work, maybe you'll grow a little bit, but it doesn't work as well as sets of five. And Ronnie and Dorian showed you that. Yeah. You know, that big muscles are based on big strength. Yeah. And that's all there is to it. You can't get strong doing sets of 12. Well, I saw uh, years ago, we watched uh, Blood and Guts, which was Dorian Yates' training video. You mm-hmm. know, him in that little uh, fucking hellhole in Birmingham. Birmingham. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'd always kind of heard the Mike Metzner, Dorian Yates, one set to failure. Uh, yeah. I had, you know, and they, you're like, how are these guys getting this big off of these 30, 45-minute workouts? And then you're watching Blood and Guts. And there's five, six, seven, eight warm-up sets. He's hitting 135, 225, 315, 405, 500. Mm-hmm. He's doing bent rows at 585. Mm-hmm. Shit, he had five or six, seven sets building up to it. Right. And then all of a sudden, he has his final die-on-the-sword set where he's hitting seven, eight, nine, and then he goes back you know, three to, a couple days later, and he's hitting it for an extra rep. And so he's doing progressive overload. Right. He's either hitting more reps, or the minute he hit a rep deal, he had to wait to the bar. And I'm like, Wait a minute, it's not one set to failure. No. You're just building up to a final it's a maximal bunch of set. tonnage. Yeah. <clears throat> now, not all of it's work set tonnage. It's all warm, yeah. But I mean, it's all a bunch of tonnage. And none of it was 12s, was it? Uh, I think he might have hit some upper rep ranges, but it was he, just because he was trying to get as many as he could. I at, mean, the, at, the, at, at the end of a peak, and, yeah. then he, and then he came back. But he didn't standard... He didn't do all of his work at, at, at sets well, of 12. And, and that was what blew me away at Jay Cutler on the podcast. And he's like, I just did four sets of 12 of every movement. And I, I was like, well, and then he, I was like, were the weights heavy? And he's like, well, maybe not not heavy for me, but then I'm watching things. I mean, they're fucking monstrous weights, but he was an absolute monster as well. Yeah, but he, big, huge guy. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he, he felt that uh, the food was the biggest driving factor. Whereas, you know, Dorian was like, oh, yeah, you got to eat and this. And, but, I mean, he, he felt that it was the training that drove him into what. Right. So it's amazing. 
But, I mean, those guys, uh, they're genetic freaks. They're not representative of the population. And it's a mistake to think that you can train, that you can pick anybody at the elite level and train like them and have their success. That is what has been sold for decades, and it's bullshit. It's complete, absolute bullshit. So when I came to CrossFit, one of the questions I kept getting from people was, what did you do for your training? I want to follow your training. And I remember asking this guy, like, why? 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 One, why would you want to do my training? Because uh, how do you know that it's going to respond the same way for me that it did for you or for yeah. you for me? And then, you know, I, and then I really got this from you. And I still, to this day, credit you for this because at the end of the day, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, and I'm always fucking pissed off in this, you know, performance world where everybody's trying to steal shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, your uh, approach about training people based upon their level of exposure with an amateur novice progression and then moving into an intermediate advanced right. athlete. Um, whereas, you know, everybody's selling a program like, here you go, here you go, here you go. And it's cooking. Everybody does the same thing. And, and it's, it doesn't and work. It, it doesn't work. And what we've proved is that there's a very real window and building upon, you know, the information from your book and what, you know, shit, we've been friends for shit. What's it been like 15 years now? Like that. Yeah. But remember when I I came out and we went over and designed those templates and talked about this novice amateur progression and this basic linear progression working for this unadapted nervous system. And we've gotten so many people strong in this novice window. John, you are the, you have popularized this, this training advancement curve at least as much as we have and it's you know what amazes me is nobody else seems to recognize this no and uh, it's, it's bizarre you take a kid <laughs> off the street yeah. who's never trained before and all you do is go up five pounds of workout on his squat yeah. for six months and suddenly you've got a four, 405 squat we've seen it works every single time yeah. it's tried and, and then, if you aren't doing that you're wasting everybody's time and you and i know that and nobody but that's good collegiate level seems to understand that's good because we look like fucking geniuses yes we do but uh the biggest thing is is i always go back and credit you with it i mean it's why we've been friends all these all these years because the end of the day i'm like i sat with mark ripto because when 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 crossfit approached me it had been so long since i was a beginner and on top of it the training i did was fucking garbage in comparison. I wish I had had this linear progression. You know, we went in and, uh, you know, Zangus had us doing singles, doubles, and triples. Right. And, uh, you know, I got no fucking nervous system, no ability to, sing, to squat singles, doubles, and triples. No. And then and I'd most go. Most people don't. And then we would leave. And, and we Zangus w- was a great powerlifting coach. Yes. And, and what no one seems to understand, especially powerlifters, is that what you and I do is not powerlifting. It is strength training. Yep. It is not the same thing. Powerlifting and strength training are not the same thing, boys and girls. Olympic lifting and strength training is certainly as hell not the same thing. You told me years ago. Strongman and strength training is not the same thing. (laughs) Well, strongman use strength training and Olympic weightlifters use strength training. If they're smart, they do. But as I remember you told me years ago, Olympic lifting is a shitty way to get strong. You can't do it. It's, a, it's the least efficient. We can't do it. You can't do it. That's why we have a bunch of drugs in Olympic weightlifting and have for 50 years. Because although Olympic lifting requires that you be strong, if all of the coaches insist that you not deadlift because it's slow and not do back squats with max weight 
and that all you do is snatch, clean, jerk, and front squat? Well, you can't get them strong that way. So you have to get them strong some other way. So what way do they get you strong? Diana ball and testosterone. Well, we're Works seeing, every time. So we're seeing the same thing in jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Um, what I really think, and the reason that the sport is so dirty with the drugs, is because they are making up for the deficit of not knowing how the fuck that to is. train. Any drug, any sport that is dirty with drugs is a sport that doesn't train the deadlift and the squat. Well, they just don't know any of this, the barbell movements, well, and they don't know how to do it. Look at baseball. Yeah. Look at baseball. How many of those guys had to go sit in front of a Senate committee, in front of John McCain, and and try to act like they weren't doing steroids? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they, I mean, it's just that, why would you want to put yourself in a position like that? You know? Why don't you just get up off your lazy ass and deadlift and squat and go up five pounds on those exercises every workout well, until it then, quits working? And then we got to pivot. I mean, that's why, yeah. you know, we use our bedrock program, which is based off of your novice progression. And then when all of a sudden it ends and we tell people this won't last forever, a tree won't grow to sky. Right. It'll end. And then you know what? Then we pivot. And then we'll get complicated. But and, until yeah. then. It's the simplest, most effective way to get really fucking strong. And what they don't understand is that that would have worked for Barry Bonds. The same novice approach. He'd never done this. If you've never done a novice progression, then you find out how much you can squat, press, bench, and deadlift. I think it's ego. And you need to do some power cleans. Of course it's ego. No, it's ego because... And and, uh, and then, but if you... If you if you find out where you are, and then the next time you come in on the deadlift and the squat, you go up ten pounds. Yeah, three sets of five, ten pounds. Do that for two weeks, and then start going up five pounds. It will work even for an elite athlete in a sport that has never gone through that process. And this is what they don't understand. Yeah. Or you're right. This is what they don't want to well, be seen doing. It's um. I think that there is like a smoke and mirrors deal. And we, we see it too with like the programming and all the information. Everybody wants mm-hmm. to be the expert. And I, I like, I think it's crazy. Um, it's why I've always right. talked about the people I've trained with, uh, the conversations I've had, where this information comes from. Because at the end of the day, um, it looks just disingenuous and it looks ridiculous when people start claiming a bunch of shit that they didn't, that they didn't create, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, the linear progression when we came out and, and we explained it, I went home and I actually tested it. And we test it in our gym. And I watch these people squat 185 pounds for a single or, or uh, sorry, for a set of five. And all of a sudden, five pounds, 10 pounds going up every week. And all of a sudden, you're looking out there and you're like, holy fuck, that guy's got 405 on that bar. Guy's got 405. And he's never like, even thought about 405 26 before. weeks later. After and resets and works this. Works every and time. Yeah. Works every time. Because how would it not work? You know, we started you know? incorporating uh, like uh, either dynamic pulls or plyometrics <laughs> or jumps to take over. You know, if they didn't want to do power cleans, because mm-hmm. you got to have something. To you got to have something to keep your explosive capacity in line with your increasing strength. Yep. Now, and and we have never said that the power clean increases your vertical jump. We've never said we've never said that the power clean increases your ability to explode because that is so. Thoroughly controlled by your genetics, yeah. that there's not any point in being in pretending that can happen. But what the power clean and the jumps, high pulse, whatever you want to do on the on the burger, I like the power clean because it's quantifiable. Yeah, did you rack it on your shoulders or not? Yeah. But the the explosive work with the barbell is for the purpose of 
keeping your ability to display an explosion under load equivalent to your increasing strength. As you get stronger, you need to explode with more weight, and that's what that's for. But it, we don't pretend that it increases neuromuscular efficiency because it doesn't. It, it, it turns a standing vertical jump, all right? You're, you're, if you walk in the gym the first day of training with a 32-inch vertical and you hadn't squatted before and you're a kid that's 18 years old, you weigh 175, 185 pounds, you're going to squat 225 the first day, whereas a kid with a 20-inch vertical is going to squat 115 the first day. You're already stronger because you're recruiting more motor units into contraction just walking around. Now, this is terribly important. This is terribly important because this is how you sort for elite ability. It, elite ability is sorted for by standing vertical jump because it's an indicator of neuromuscular efficiency. And you cannot improve neuromuscular efficiency. The best strength program in the country never improves standing vertical jump more than 25%. And most of them are 15 16, 17, 18% improvement. That's all. That's all. Whereas if you take a kid off the street that day and you, you with a 22-inch vertical jump and you get his squat from 115 to 405 in nine months, which you can do, you have increased his power because of the algebra. But you did it with the variable on top of the little bar instead of the one at the bottom of the little bar, the T thing, which doesn't go up very much. So, do you know how much of strength and conditioning, well, you do, how much strength and conditioning is, is complete bullshit. You, this rate of force development training is a waste of time. It's a complete waste of time because if you are not getting your squat up to 405, then you are missing out on training the most trainable variable of the three in the power equation. T's not trainable. T's born. F, force production on top, is trainable. And if your strength coach doesn't know how to do that, that's a problem. Right? No, I mean, strong is better. I strong mean, is always better. When we came to CrossFit, I uh, I remember when they first pitched me on this. Remember, strength was just one of the ten elements of fitness. Yes, I do and remember I that. I remember telling them, very I'm like, clearly. dude, strength is the platform of which everything's built right. upon. So there's exactly. not ten elements of fitness. No. Strength is the platform that you build the other nine on. When That's you're right. strong, you can, one, you can handle more load. You can do things. I mean, stronger people well, have always been a better. And I've, I've played against some incredibly gifted athletes. And oh, yeah. at the end of the day, the guys that were stronger when it came down and athleticism was matched, the stronger athlete, it's like, you know, between two athletes, the fastest guy is going to be more successful in the field. Sure. The same thing in playing my job. When all thing is equal, the guy that's stronger and it can generate more force and hit, mm -hmm. like all of a sudden those become the deciding factors. Well, that, that list of eight attributes or 10 or whatever the hell it was, was from a strength and conditioning, at least from a track coach down here in central Texas someplace. Yeah. I don't remember the guy's name, but. But he seemed to think that wasn't that Dan Path, was it? Was it Dan Path that did those that elements? Sound familiar? Okay. No, but uh, CrossFit seized on that. That's one of the biggest problems with their methodology, is they didn't understand that you have to prioritize strength because yeah. everything else is dependent well, upon force production. That's what I did. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. As Glassman told me, I virally destroyed CrossFit by convincing everybody they needed to be strong, not elite. <laughs> 
Well, he didn't. I thought I'd got credit for that. Uh, well, you, well, you, what well, we did. As tall as you are. Well, well, you know what it is is uh, uh, I dropped uh, strength templates into CrossFit workouts through the CrossFit football deal. Right. And so, in a way, we just viral, you know, because you were teaching strength, I showed them how to add the CrossFit piece in. So I think I just added the pie, a little bit to the pie. <laughs> yeah, but we were equally hated. Oh yes, good, good. Couldn't be better hated <laughs> by a bunch, better bunch of people. <laughs> oh god. But uh, yeah, it's just it's absolutely amazing the uh, the lack of appreciation for the genetic predisposition component to athletic performance is is completely misunderstood while at the same time every human being on the planet has the potential to improve their force production capacity everyone everybody's grandmother everybody's uncle everybody can get stronger Everybody can get stronger, and all you have to do is go up five pounds of workout. And that's it works every single time it's tried. The the starting strength gyms so are, about, well, are, well, let's take a step back. So a couple of years ago, you were approached by one of your you know uh, starting strength coaches about potentially opening up satellite locations for starting yeah. strength. And he came in with a pretty amazing idea of, one, uh, let's put them in retail locations. Right. Make sure they're all branded, not huge you know, boxes, but very efficient, smaller locations, square feet. right? And then building it on personal training, not yes. like open gym. Right. And so people come in, they, they pay their fee, they, coached. everyone's coached, but you also went after a different demographic. You weren't looking yes. for the 18 to 26 year old athlete. They you were looking, money. yeah, you were looking for the 50 plus right. individual that, that was uh, looking to build strength to increase the, efficacy and really just the quality of their lives the way i summarized the demographic was we're looking for 55 year old guys who use viagra who still want to be physical that's who we're looking for we're looking for 55 year old guys with chronic low back pain that use viagra because we can fix chronic low back pain in three weeks goes away never comes back it's amazing in three weeks and the guy's interested enough in his physical ability that he's taking Viagra. And compared to that, what's $455 a month? Sure. You know, we hand him his manhood back, to use an antiquated term. We hand him that back. And he's he appreciates that. Yeah. He appreciates that. So you started with one location. We started kind of a with a location here in Austin. We had some problems with that at first. And we have turned that around to where the Austin location is the number one performing gym in the country. Wow. We've got 21 gyms in the country. Are they all? Uh, we have 35 of them sold. We got So we got 14 in various stages of development. So are, are these uh, independent owner operators or are, are you guys partnered with them? We are not partnered with them we are we are a franchise company okay. so we're completely different than CrossFit in yeah. that it's not an affiliate program at all you build your gym the way we tell you to do it you use our trade dress our equipment our logos our training methods you staff your gym with starting strength coaches everything is standardized and we're trying to do McDonald's 
with bar, with with effective barbell training. That's what we're trying to do. So that you walk into a starting strength gym anywhere in the country and you get the same program and the same eyeballs on your squat, the same form corrections for your deadlift, press, and bench press, mm-hmm. and the same equipment, same corrections and coaching for your power clean. <clears throat> And we do all of that, and and it and it's it's tightly, tightly regulated. We uh, we don't we're we're trying to standardize quality control, and this is a problem. Yeah, this is a problem. You know, you you've just got different brains and different eyes and different levels of experience. Well, and, that's an know. interesting one. I mean, um, I had a conversation about this the other day with somebody when uh, I was a you know and, and you've taught seminars long before you got involved in CrossFit but just the amount of people that we worked with I mean that first year I taught 36 seminars you know I mean we all over the world I mean we went in and it was anywhere yep. from 25 to 50 new people every single weekend right. and it was like every 4 weeks we were on the road 3 and you end up working with just tens of thousands of athletes yes. and having teaching them the basic barbell movements going through this and all of a sudden you develop an incredible, like almost clairvoyant skill set yes. to where I can watch somebody approach a bar and know exactly how many times that they've done, they've squatted. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I've been squatting for years. I can watch them approach and watch their setup and know whether or not they're full of shit or not. Right. And no, you can, and you, you get a feel for this. But uh, there's after no having way. done after having watched yeah. tens of thousands of reps. I, I remember watching uh, a video with you years ago. Uh, we watched uh, a cut-up that had to be fucking hundreds of people pulling a bar off the ground from mm-hmm. the side. And you said to me, the bar does not come off the ground to the minute that all of a sudden if it starts under the, the crease, all of a sudden here. And like, regardless of where you start, the bar won't come off until you get in this position. So that's where we're going to start. And when you've yep. seen hundreds, if not thousands of people to do it, you develop a certain skill set. Right. And this is something that we struggle with, and you're struggling through with your coaches because there's no way to replicate that. No, there's not. You have to know the angles when you see them. Yeah. There are a set of angles that you coach. And, the, and what's, what people don't understand is the back angle is not one of them. Well, that's not. It's, that's it's not, always going to change. Back based on angle changes with anthropometry. Yeah, and if you know if they're short legged, long torso, they're it's going to be real vertical. If they're long legged, short torso, it's going to be real flat. But their shoulders are always going to be, be in front of the bar, and that and bar, bar is going to sit under that crease of the armpit. And and it's yes, and it and the bar is going to be right over the middle of the foot every single time, yep. or it won't come off the ground. Nope. If it's heavy enough. Yep. Now, if it's light enough, it can, because yep. snatch can come off the ground anywhere because it's not a max pull. Yep. A clean can come off the ground almost anywhere because it's not a max pull. So if you've got if you're looking at Taranenko do two sixty six from nineteen eighty eight. The bar came off the ground forward of the midfoot about that far. And then the first thing it did was come back. Yep, he had to pull it back. To the point where he could pull on it hard, which is directly over the midfoot. Every single heavy clean jerk shows the same curve off the floor. Now, it's not curved off the floor because it's supposed to be curved off the floor. It's curved off the floor because it's an artifact of him trying to pull it forward to where he should. And all we're saying is just pull it over the middle of the foot. Yeah. And that way you have longer through the vertical bar path to accelerate the bar. And if you do it like that, it will go higher. We've got video after video demonstrating this very thing where you people, people learned how to squat 
USAW style with the bar over the toes, and then the bar, the back angle sweeps back in, and finally the bar gets, after it moves six inches up in the air, it's over the middle of the foot. And then we compare those pulls with our pulls, and we see who pulled the bar higher. And guess what happens every single time? We pull the bar higher, always, with everybody. Yeah, but you're not an Olympic lifting coach. No, well, I was. <laughs> this is what we don't. No, this I'm, is what I'm just did. fucking taking shots. No, at I, know, you. I know. I know. I just want to tell the tell our <laughs> friends here. I was the the president of the North Texas weightlifting uh, committee for the LWC. We called them, which is the way USAW is organized. I was the president of the USA of uh, the. USAW, I started back when it was U.S. Weightlifting Federation. USAW's North Texas LWC for 12 years. I sanctioned all the meets and did all the Olympic lifting in North Texas for a long time. I've been an Olympic lifting coach since 1989. And I don't want to hear this bullshit about I don't know what the hell I'm talking about with Olympic weightlifting because that's just not true. So how did you get into this? How I get into this shit right yeah, here? Yeah, well, I mean, like, so, so yeah, I mean, the whole I, deal. Yeah. Oh, I've, you know, lost a fight <laughs> when I was 19. <laughs> I didn't lose it bad, but I lost it bad enough to where I thought to myself, yeah, I'll start getting stronger. Was it like the, uh, it like in the back of the magazine where the bully or the no, guy like kicked no, sand in his face? No, it wasn't bad. No, it wasn't the kick sand in the face kind of thing. It like just, you, you know, remember those like uh, in the oh, back? Yeah. yeah. What oh, was yeah. it? Yeah. That was uh, Charles Atlas. Yeah. Charles Atlas. Charles Atlas. He made a bunch of money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't a Charles Atlas deal, uh, but it was a wake up call. You know, I need to, and, and I started off just exactly like everybody else starts off not knowing a goddamn thing about what I was doing. And I started up at the weight room, and I didn't know anything about it. Was this in Wichita Falls? It was in Wichita Falls. It was, I didn't know anything about it. I just went up there and played around on the machines. And I trained pretty hard, but I really wasn't training. I, I was just exercising with the machines and everything. And I fell in with a guy that didn't know anything more about it than I did, although he was a professor at school there. And then I hooked up with Bill Starr in the summer of 1979. How did that happen? And, well, the way it happened was his daughter lived in Wichita Falls. <clears throat> his family had lived here. And his daughter, Christy Lou, lived here in Wichita Falls, and she got hurt in the tornado in 1979. In April of 79, we had a great big giant F5 tornado in Wichita Falls, tore up 25% of the buildings in town. Bad, bad tornado. And uh, so he was here taking care of her, and he was up at the college weight room, and I ran into him a couple of times up there, and he kind of took me under his wing. And he and I became good friends, and we we're good friends the rest of his life. And uh, he taught me a lot of stuff, and I kind of took that and ran with it. But uh, I started working in the gym business. I think I started in the gym business in 78, actually, because I had started uh, fooling around with this back about 76 or 7. 
Well, um, for those of you guys that don't know, go to Google and look up Bill Starr, and he wrote a training manual called The Strongest Shall Survive. Yes. That was the, which is, if the, you can... The first book of its type. Yeah. It, if you have the opportunity to buy it, I still own it. Yeah. It's, it's it's a it's a groundbreaking yeah. thing. It's no, a it's, it's a incredible seminal text. It was, uh, and a lot of people want to say, well, starting strength is just strongest shall survive. No, it's not. It bears no resemblance to strongest shall survive at all. Well, yeah, the cover. All. Well, that cover was blue. Your cover's not blue, right? Yeah. Well, my cover's blue. It, it's a different. <laughs> it's a different. Different, it's different shade of blue. Different shade of blue. But uh, Bill Starr uh, was one of the very first strength coaches. I think it was in Hawaii. It was his first job, yes, as I remember. He was the strength coach at the University of Hawaii. He had he was strength coach at Baltimore Colts for a couple of years, back when they were in Baltimore, and uh, worked with some freak athletes. He was at uh, York Barbell during a period of time when a lot of those extremely talented lifters were were at York Barbell, he was the guy that coached Ken Patera. Yeah. And he told me a couple of times that Ken Patera, as far as he was concerned, Ken Patera was the strongest strength athlete the United States ever produced. Yeah. And uh, I've got a... a picture on the wall of the gym of Patera doing a push jerk with 518. So there's that. Yeah. You know. And then he got and, into professional wrestling for those yeah. guys that don't know Ken Patera. And yeah, Ken Patera, was a, he's still alive, I believe, but he's I sure would like to talk to him about his training, but he's not real big on any interviews. But the guy was, uh, I've seen uh, some of his training notes and he was he was a scary motherfucker, man. That guy was, oh God Almighty, the stuff he could do. He could just eat tonnage alive. Yeah, just didn't bother him to do sets across for six hundred pounds. What about uh like um uh who who is the big dude with the mustache? Um, uh, Doug Young. Doug Young was was uh, uh, Star knew him, yeah. but he never coached him. Doug lived in Brownwood, Texas, which is yeah. just over there. Yeah. Uh, uh, Tucker, most uh, of his life. Tucker, and, Tucker lives in Brownwood. Oh, he does. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a. Uh, Doug lived over there. His brother, his brother Bob, lived down in Houston somewhere, and Bob had played in the NFL for yeah. a while. Yeah. Doug never played in the NFL. He was just big power lifter. I watched him. Me and a couple other guys drove down to Dallas a long time ago to watch. Doug bench over six hundred. Now this is this is before shirts. Yeah, he did that night. He did six oh six in a t-shirt, weighing about two seventy five. And there, I don't know that there are many people in the world capable of doing that right now. But uh, I'm sure there are more than there yeah. were then. But uh, well, well we have Instagram, we have uh, social media, so yeah, I mean, you know everybody yeah. does that on the everybody weekend. does six hundred. Everybody's mentioned six hundred these days. Deal. Yeah, our guy, yeah, kid Chase Lindley, did four hundred five standing press four hundred five at two forty five body weight. Wow! And all the comments on the internet is just it's just a standing bench press because he had a layback. Hmm. That's just a standing bench press. 
Which means, of course, that anyone can do yeah. a standing bench press with 405. Uh, 405 fucking standing press is pretty legit. Yeah, that's legit. So, a, and he was 21. Yeah, at my best, I, I pressed. It was uh, 315 pounds. It was which actually... Is, which it was, is a it was at It was at your starting strength seminar at McKenzie's gym. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so that was my best. But yeah, I was, that was... I, know, I was, but I was 300 I remember pounds. that, believe it or not, because that's nobody's done that since. Yeah. At one of my seminars, but I also had a, a over five hundred pound bench. So, that helps. Yeah, that helps. So that helps. If they're not as related as you'd think they would be, yeah. you know, they're they're really not. And uh, if you've got a big bench, you may not have a big press. If you've got a big press, you may not have a big bench. But it helps. Everything helps like that. We interrupt this episode with a shameless self promotion. Are you pushing through performance roadblocks caused by pain or janky movement mechanics? Knock the rust off with our movement health courses used by thousands of athletes worldwide from average shows to MVPs. Our courses give you the tools to assess and fix yourself so you can get back to breaking necks and cashing checks. Not convinced? Get a taste of how our courses can help you by enrolling in a free sample today. Head to powerathletehq.com and search courses from the menu. Now back to the show. What we have been doing... Uh... I guess probably over the past 10 years, I have uh, reduced the number of exercises that we use uh, radically because I saw the effects of watering down a strength program with exercise variety in CrossFit. And what we are doing at this point in time is for the vast majority of people, we use six exercises. Vast majority of people. We squat, we press, we bench press, we deadlift, we clean, and we do chins. And that's all. And that's all. We don't. I've got RDLs in the book. I've got all kinds of shit in the book that we don't use anymore because it's just not necessary for the vast majority of people because the vast majority of people are intermediates or novices. Yeah. And, the, you know, since we don't work with a bunch of athletes, we just we just pretty much confine ourselves to those basic exercises. Well, and also... And uh, here's the other thing we've, we've, we've started doing. We, we have started looking at strength training not from the standpoint of what's available to use in the gym, but from the standpoint of what are the basic human movement patterns that could be, that could be done bilaterally with a load. And there are only a few. There is squatting down and standing back up. There is picking something up off of the floor. There's pushing something up over your head. There's pushing something away from you. There's pulling something toward you and there's throwing something. And if you look at it from the standpoint of these movement patterns and how now these are the basic human movement patterns that you can use with heavy weights. Yeah, I know. We call them primal movements. Yeah, and it's it's these things are loaded with a barbell and that's strength training. And everything else is bullshit. Everything else are just exercises. Well, I do like unilateral movements. Yeah, I know and, you do. And, and I but, knew but, but, we'd but eventually I, disagree on But something. I also but, train a different population than you. Yes, do. I know. Yeah. So I know. And, and and you know what? 
there can be two completely separate methodologies based upon individual pools of people. Yeah. Like for the right. pool in which you're working, but, but this is the most efficient deal that you found. And so for me to just be like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, uh, like the fact that people cannot see somebody else's perspective and realize, okay, who are you working with? What's right. available to you? And what is the, the minimal or the maximal output that I can get for the minimal input? Right. And for you, the, you figured out efficiency. Well, the, we figured out efficiency for people who are not athletes. Because that's who we train is people who are not athletes. That's now, why it's called wanna, starting strength. We want we want to go from and that's what why it's we called, do to athletics. And that's why it's and, called and, and power. That's why you're power athlete. We're yeah. two different, but we've got we've got slightly separate, slightly different approaches, but they're both based on the same thing. Yeah. Force production. Yeah. Force production is strength, yeah. and that's all there is to it. How do you most efficiently produce force? And to steal one of yours. Power is defined as your ability to display your strength dynamically. That's right. And I still tell people my definition, which I got from you. It's it's the power is strength displayed quickly. Yeah. That's all it is. And the stronger you are, the more you can display it. Yeah. And this is this is why that F times D over T thing is so critical. If you understand that, then you understand that rate of force development training is is a waste of time. Until you're stronger. And even then, even then, if you're a talented athlete, you're already able to display force quickly. Yeah. And if you're not able to display force quickly, you're not going to be performing at the elite level in athletics. And that's just all there is to it. And you know what? And, and that's fine. Well, too, it's you know? because it's the world's biggest meritocracy. You right. Know, you exactly. Know, playing in the NFL and playing exactly. in major league, major sports, or like you know, uh, uh, like what Victor did a couple of weeks ago, competing and winning. It's a meritocracy. There's no way that you can get to that point without doing the work and being right. the best you in the world. You cannot bullshit your way into the no. NFL. People don't understand. Well, why is that? that they're is, not Tom Brady. Well, it, is it because uh, like the social media and the internet and like you know magazines? What they're doing is they're trying to sell everybody that you too, if you do this. You can be a Fortune 500 CEO and a, and a Hall of Fame football player. I'm convinced. Once it get, gets back to the, it's back to the lack of appreciation for the genetic component of the of the performance. You know, these people are born; they're not trained. You know, Tom Brady is a movement genius. He's a magician yeah, with the ball on the field. He's a magician, yeah. and you are not. Those of you guys that, that think you're going to be, you know, you may be a good high school football player, but you're not a fucking magician. Well, I mean, for me, I was you fortunate know? to play 10 years in the NFL. You you know, you're a magician. But these guys, you know, you might get in and play two years and get out and make a little money in the, in the process. But Tom Brady, my God, do you remember Fran Tarkenton? You remember watching that fat old man run around in the backfield and not anybody be able to touch him? Or do you remember he's a uh, magician? Or you remember Kenny Stabler taking his hair, uh, you know, full head of gray hair, and he's out yeah. there, and, and he's five years younger than Tom, and Tom's out there looking great. I, it, it's, it's just uh, amazing. It's, well, it um, so um, um, there's a I forget the guy's name. His, his handle's Duke, and he has something called O line. Um, what's it called? O line mastery. Um, but he trains a bunch of offensive linemen up in Dallas. And uh, he has a, a kind of a summit that uh, I think is going to happen here at the end of the month or in July. So he invited me to come. 
and uh, reached out, hey, I'd love to have you come. Would you? And I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm in town that weekend. I'd love to drive up because I'm always, uh, it, it's always fun to go to things like that and see guys. I think Willie Rope was there last year, and I hadn't seen him mm-hmm. since Tony's Hall of Fame deal. So I'm kind of interested to see who shows up. But it's always fun to talk to these young guys and even see the old guys in this. But it's such a very few amount of people are able to do that job and do it well. And right. the people that are. Especially for mm-hmm. 10 years. And My I, God, and that I, is... That how many NFL offensive linemen play for ten years? Well, this is the interesting thing. You you got to know that number. Uh, right? No, no, but but here's the thing: if you can do the job and you can do it at a high level, you can do it for a long time. So really? the the yeah the probably the number and, and think about this: all these guys, you know, uh, Will Shields didn't miss a play for fourteen years. You know, Willie Ruff. I mean, all these guys that play. Like that, you know, they play for Walter a long Payton. Time. I mean, yeah. how long did Walter Payton play? Well, look at Barry Sanders. I mean, look yeah. at these guys. I mean, there's some of the, the best athletes, but it, it's fun uh, to go chop it up, especially with these young guys and like see them at the beginning of their journey. And hopefully, you give them some sage advice, you know, that helps them. But mm-hmm. what's interesting is when I was watching some of the clips when the older guys get up and talk about, like, hey, like this is the way I understood and they understand their skill set. And the reason that the guys that are able to play for a long time, what they've done is they've assessed and they know who they are and they have a unique skill set that they can implement on the field. And I think the issue with most people is if you don't have that skill set, right, even if you do, if you're not 6'5", I mean, thank God I'm, you know, just a hair under 6'6", and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, pretty, you know, was able to weigh 300 plus pounds. Like, unless you even meet those statistics, you're right. not even getting to the party. And then you got to have athleticism. And then you got to have, right. you know, this. And so you got to have several requirements stacked on top of each other yeah. that even put you there in the first And one. you got to have the luck to avoid the injury. Right. You know? So, I mean, there's so many things that go into it. I remember, geez, it had to be about 10 years ago, I was at a deal with the NFL. And Troy Vincent, who I played with uh, at, the, at the Eagles, got up. And he said in the last, you know, since the beginning of the NFL, they had about 40,000 guys that played in the NFL. It's probably more now, obviously. And less than a 1,000 of those guys have played longer than four years. Wow. And as he went through the names, all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know that guy. Oh, shit, I played against, you know. So it was, you know, this was 10 years ago. How many played offensive line for 10 years? Um, Man, it was like in maybe like the 300s. So maybe, wow. I mean, it's it's not a big, it's Just not a big. tiny number. Yeah. And well, I mean, it's different today because uh, after the CBA in 09, they changed the game. You know, you all of a sudden got Junior Seau shooting himself, and you got guys killing themselves. They had to change the game. So um, after that CBA in 09, they only get like five padded practices a year. So what they did is they removed the, all, all of the hitting out of training camp and all the hitting during the season. So what you're seeing now where people are talking about, like the NFL players are getting bigger, they're getting stronger, and they're getting faster, they're not. Right? They're still the same. The problem is is that they removed all of the training load in practice and training camp so that when the players are playing now, they're, they can, they, they can be bigger and faster and stronger because right. they're more healthy. So when I went to training camp in 99 with Andy Reid, first year in Philly, we had 42 days in training camp. So we had about a two-and-a-half, three-hour practice in the AM. We'd come back and have another two-and-a-half-hour practice in pads the whole time. And then the next morning, we'd be in pads again, and then we'd have a special teams. So in two days, we would have three, and if you had to go to special teams, four. And we did that for 42 days, right? So, God. So, so we That's, had – it was we called it a baton death march, right? Yeah. We had a buy-in preseason. So technically – How many made it through that? Uh, not very many. Uh, but the crazy part is I probably saw more hitting in that training camp than a guy who goes in and plays in the NFL today mm-hmm. will see in 10 years. In and the camp. In the did. camp. 
right? Think about five padded practices right. and then 16 games. So, or 17 games, let's say. So what, like 21 legit hitting days? Shit, we, we had 42 my friend, my rookie year. And then I played for Dick Vermeil that did the same thing. Three hour, I mean, Dick Vermeil had a team revolt against him at the Rams who tried to walk off saying you can't fire us all because of the practices. And then I played for Dick. And it was like <laughs> three hour practices hitting in this. I remember when 09 came and the new CBA hit, I remember Tony Gonzalez called me and said, we could have played 20 years. He didn't, Tony played 17. He's like, he's like, I, he's like, if this didn't come, I could not have played as long as I did. He's right. like, the amount of hitting we did, these kids will never see it. So the NFL is, it is getting faster. The guys are getting bigger and they are hitting harder. And it's not because the athletes are because they're not using them up in training camp. Because they're not killing them. Right. They're not beating the shit out of them. Right. But I'll tell you, a kid today who plays 10 years will probably have less volume than I had in my first training camp. I mean, it was one-on-one, nine-on-seven, inside yeah, run, full pass, three hours. Like, the amount of hitting that we did, it was, I mean, fucking gashes in the head, the whole deal. And it's just how we did it. And we did that for years. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they change it. And they're like, oh, these athletes are getting, these guys are so, they're just not fucking banged up. They're yeah. healthy. Right. And they can train. Um, and they're still training. It's not like they're like in, you know, go into the training camp or into uh, the training room like for fucking triage after a killer practice. These dudes are probably like getting off the field and still doing all their performance training where like most dudes didn't lift weights because they physically couldn't. Because they couldn't. Yeah. So it's just, <laughs> oh, it's, it's just a different deal. But they yeah. had to change because you got dudes. I mean, so when a dude shoots himself in the heart and leaves a note saying, I'm killing myself. Look at my brain. Something is wrong. They got to make a fucking change, and that's yeah. what happened. And then you know when right. Junior, when Junior passed away and killed himself, that was like the moment that uh, you know because I mean Junior Seau gave me my welcome to the NFL moment. And, oh god! And um, you know to see him and to know like that deal was just insane. But it's a uh, it's an amazing game, and uh, I'm sad that they had to kind of change it. But I was glad that I got to play in the generation which I did at the tail end of this and into right. that piece. So it was it was cool for that. But it's well, also you had a completely different experience than these guys now have, and I don't know which one's better. You know, if you play tired and you don't get hurt because the other guy's tired too, is that better, or is it better to play healthy? And take that one shot. Yeah, I don't know. That puts you on your ass. Yeah. You know. It's kind of like uh, you jump at a brand new race car that doesn't have the motor broken in. There's a good chance you're going to blow it a post from if you right. had a bunch of runs under it. Under it. You know. Uh, I was going to ask you. Uh, you have a strange affinity for interesting cars. I have a strange affinity for. Uh, all right. Interesting cars. All right. We'll we'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I am completely blown away by the cars that you're into and the way that you modify them. Because, well, you know, you know, we've talked on this podcast many times. I'm into cars. I weld, I fabricate, and I build shit. Yeah. And uh, I have an appreciation for horsepower and motors. But yours is kind of a non-conventional type of vehicle. Well, I've got, uh, I've got a couple of trucks with 5.9 Cummins diesels in them. Which I've got, that's, I love. That's just, those are all right. But uh, they're not as trouble-free as everybody thinks they are. But... All, they all, do all, all pull peep, like motherfuckers. All P-pump trucks are all 5.9 uh, no, five five diesel. Well, I know the 5.9 diesel, but the 12 valves, the P-pump trucks, are you into like the common rails, 5.9s? Like what year? This is uh, 04, 05. Okay, those are common rails. Yes. Uh, you right. saw my blue flatbed. What that's year a, model is that? Uh, that's a um, 05 uh, G50, or a, a G56 manual. I got that single cab. 
Uh, I don't know if you saw it sitting underneath That's the a tree. Dodge? Yeah, it's a Dodge I 05. I didn't see it. So oh, yeah. I'll, I'll show I'll it. I'll have to look at that. But I, now this is a, this is a, the ones I've got are double cab 05, six speed. Yeah. Manuals. Manuals. Yeah. Well, it's, it's nothing else is a truck as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah. And my two cars, I've got a Porsche. I've got a 997, an 05 model 997, which is the 911 Carrera S. And that is a that's a nice little fucking car. I'm yeah. telling you that thing is is uh, bought it from a buddy of mine, and uh, oh, I had I mean it's got 135 thousand miles on it. I just put some had to put some money in. It. You know, it's time for water pump and stuff like that. Yep. And and then my other car is the one you're talking about, which is an 08 model M6. Now this car. Is it, it's a BMW M6, which is the six series. It's the two-door coupe. And that thing came stock with a five-liter V10 engine. And it was normally aspirated. There's no supercharger, no turbo, anything yeah. on this and thing. And manual transmission. Right? Manual transmission. They only made 300... And twenty three manual transmissions. Is it a from 05 to ten? Is it BMW's manual, or did they yes. use Mercedes or no, some? No, it's a folks? BMW. Okay. They were at the time were making a six speed manual transmission. I didn't even know they made a six speed manual. It's there. They didn't. They quit making six speed manuals, I believe, after two thousand ten. BMW hadn't put a six speed manual or manual transmission of any of any kind in a car since 05. They're all automatics. Yeah. Uh, but this thing uh, got an engine builder up in, uh, he's in Indiana, Indiana right now. He moved from Michigan to Indiana and he built a, I bought the car from him and he put a six liter stroked V10 in that thing. Previous iteration of that motor was making 705 horsepower at the wheels in a 3,700-pound car. This is the 6-liter? This is the 6-liter. N.A. And no, no no, no, boost or anything. And it is normally aspirated 6-liter, making 705 horsepower at the wheels. But that engine was a 13.5-to-1 compression engine. So for those of you guys that it, don't know compression, you know, at 13 and a half to one, you got to run uh, some very expensive race gas. Yes, on that. you have to run race gas in it. But in, in in lieu of race gas, if you put a methanol kit on it, you're sure. fine. Yeah. Now, I went to Dallas to have some work done on that car, and the shop disconnected my methanol kit, hmm. and the motor blew up. Yeah, well, fuck, dude. If you didn't have you know, enough, uh, I mean, with the compression that high, if you don't have enough detonation, you're going to smoke it. You know, it's yeah. just, you know, and they're supposed to know this. Yeah. But their attorneys educated about it. Yeah. <laughs> Before it was over with. So, took the thing back up and had another motor put in it. This thing is 12 to one compression right now, which is a little more reasonable. Yeah, a little bit better. So I'm figuring it's making 635 at the wheels and it's still scarier than hell. It's yeah. real scary. 
Does he do anything with uh, some um, force induction? Like put a supercharger on no. it or anything? He won't no. do any of that? He doesn't. He has one way he builds these things, and he bores them. He's got a rotating assembly that he puts in them. The rotating assembly in that car is uh, it's billet steel, crankshaft, rods, forged steel pistons, forged aluminum pistons. And uh, it, it's it's... A, it's it's stupid. It's it's real stupid. I was I'm hoping not, you were going to drive it down. I will next time. Okay. I, I'm just I don't trust it yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a bunch of, it's a BMW. <laughs> and if you trust your BMW, you just hadn't owned it long enough. Well, yet. the <laughs> I, I I do appreciate that you uh, do like German cars because I yeah. I had an 06 uh, twin turbo Porsche. And, uh, oh I, God yeah, Almighty! Yeah, I love that. Nine eleven. Yeah, nine eleven. And actually, right. uh, when I oh, was, I bet that was. Um, I, that, I think that, that thing turbo's nice, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, I I bought my dad when I got to the NFL. I think uh, when I got my second contract, it was like an O two or an O three uh, twin turbo. Bought him, and he actually drove it drove it until he passed away. Um, and I loved I love Porsches, and I love and, and I always regret. Uh, when I was 24, I went and I bought my first Porsche. Right. It was a seal gray 911 Carrera. And I went in there looking because uh, I wanted uh, an air-cooled one. And I was young. I didn't know. Oh, I went yeah. in and I told the guy what I wanted. I wanted a, you know, what was it, a 997. the last year of the air-cooled. It would have been. Uh, I was looking for, or the guy had, a, I think it was a 97 or a 98. Uh, 99 was the first year of the liquid cool. Mm-hmm. So I went in to go look at it, and the salesman talked me out of it. You know, you don't want that old junk, and I ended up buying it. And I regret uh, it was a black on black '97 air cooled, air cooled tour, turbo with a tail. Ah, that's a Porsche, and yeah. I should have fucking bought it. And I periodically was that a three liter flat six? Yeah, and uh, they're they they're, they they go for a, a quarter liter flat six. Those go for yeah. like a quarter of a million now. <laughs> and I think I, I love you said that. I was I took mine down. There is a good Porsche dealership in Plano. Okay, Plano Porsche is a good Porsche dealer. They've got mechanics that know what the fuck is going on. And I took, I got hooked up with one of their mechanics and I took this car down to the, I got had some codes I wanted to, wanted him to look at lifter problems and stuff. This guy's a genius. I mean, a genius. His name is John Gladwell and he's a good guy and he knows what the fuck he's talking about. So I took this car down there and I went I, and he had it, he kept it for three or four weeks and I, it's fine. You know, this guy's, thinking about this and he's calling me he'll start working on it i'll get three phone calls from him mm-hmm. here i found this what do you want to do here's this other deal what do you want to do what do you think we'll do about this deal here i mean yeah i've never been treated like that by a mechanic before yeah so i went down there to pick the damn thing up and parked under the canopy is a 19 i believe it was a 1966 the little coupe. Yeah. I don't know what the numbers were on this. Well, one. I think they had like, uh, well, they were 911s, but they might have been 912s. If it was a turbo, it would be like a 930. This, is 60. this was not a turbo. No, this would have been like well, like 911s. I think they just called them 911s, but then they, they had 912s, which was, I think, was a slightly. Might have been, been the six version, the yeah. six cylinder. I don't know. I don't know. But I, this thing is perfect. I mean, there's, this is perfect. It's, it's red, pure red. Yeah, guards red. And there's not there. The, the thing is absolutely stock. And this is like a four cylinder. This is a flat four. Yeah. 
old boxer motor. Yeah. Yep. This goddamn thing's a flat four. And I said, uh, I'm just in there shooting the shit with the guys. And I said, how many million dollars is that car worth out there? And he said, 1.6. Yeah. Oh, I know. And it was an executive, For airline executive. Oh. No, it was, you know, yeah. big guy in Dallas brought it over there just to have it serviced. So, Can you imagine driving a $1.6 million car on the highway to the dealership? To have it, I, uh, so I, I guess if you got that kind of money, it's not a big deal. But, I mean, so we, uh, there, um, uh, you know, I have a Shelby. I have a 68 GT500. 68 yeah oh um, shit yeah gt500 numbers matching and uh you know and oh it's, shit. it's up in my shop i had a oh i had an 11 gt500 shelby gt500 and i hated the damn thing <laughs> i'm not I, f- I was scared of that car I'm, I'm not a fan of fords after probably about 69 or 70 uh yeah. but there was uh we we went to a um like a vintage race and there was a guy there that was racing a 65 GT350, you know, the original Shelby. Right, right. And the guy had Shelby bought it. Ameri- Shelby American. The guy had bought Made, it new. Right. He, oh, no he had bought it new from Shelby. And he, he basically went out and he raced it and then went back when still Shelby America was in El Segundo in California or in right. Venice, wherever they were, and bought all the replacement panels if he ever racked it up and you could go in and physically buy all the pieces. So right. he had collected all the parts to rebuild it, all yeah. the NOS stuff, if he ever racked it up. And the guy was like, it's still, I think he paid, you know, the sticker on it was like 4200 bucks or whatever he paid. And he's like, and now all of a sudden this thing was like, you know, one of the GTRs or I, I don't know what the deal, but it was like one of the original ones picked it up from Shelby. I mean, the story was like one owner. I mean, that's a multi, yeah, multi, million dollar car. Right, right. And the right. guy's like, yeah, you know, if I break, if, if I, if I smack it up, I got all the parts to fix it and I still enjoy it. And it was still, well, his, that's the way to do it. Oh yeah. God damn. That's uh, the way to do it. So where, it? where, and, uh, take it a step further where I grew up in Southern California was in, you know, Palos Verdes, Torrance area. And right down on the other side where Torrance airport is, um, there's a guy named Mike McCluskey who is like the Shelby restoration guy for the, you know, the, the Cobras. Mm-hmm. You know, has all the original bucks in there. And so when we were kids, there's a little like kind of general store we'd ride our bikes to. We used to see Cobras all the time. And it wasn't until years later where I had uh, this GTO Judge convertible that a guy bought from me. And I ended up, uh, when he went to buy the car, he's like, hey, I got to go check out this guy, Mike McCluskey. And we drove to his shop at Torrance Airport, which was right near the In-N-Out Burger we used to go to. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this car and I remember seeing these cars as little kids. And his shop is literally at Torrance Airport, has all the original bucks. I mean, <laughs> anybody who has a, an original car brings it to him to restore and I got a chance right. to see him. And the, the saddest day was when I realized I couldn't sit in the car in those original Cobras. I'd always wanted too one. Fucking small too Too small. <laughs> so I, I had a 67. I, the thing. I, I had a 67 GT500 and a guy bought it. And then I have a 68 that I still got to put the motor back in. But I got that in my shop. I, right. I have, uh, I, dude, for some reason, uh, I have always loved Porsches. And I have always hunted that like last one or two years of that air cooled turbo and all on all on another one, but um, the, well eventually you'll yeah. find one of the damn well, things. But, that, but I also remember we live in Texas. I kind of live on a dirt road as you were driving in right. on that gravel. It's, it's hard on air cooled shit. Yeah, you know? and it's hot You've as fuck. You have to change filters all. Yeah, the time. and I mean when you live in Southern California or Monterey in California yeah. where it doesn't get over eighty degrees <laughs> and you're at the ocean, they run great. Here in Old Texas. It was 111 degrees in the shop yesterday when we were training I went up yeah, in the gym. Yeah. And it's just it's fucking part of the deal. Yeah, it's part of being here. you got to be tougher in the middle of the country. You know? so, so what's your legacy? Books. I don't have any kids, but i got books. 
and I've got hundreds of thousands of people that are trained with our methods and that have nothing but good stuff to say about how we've helped them. I've got letters up all over the gym, and uh, that's my legacy, and I'm proud of it. I really am. I've had a lot of help along the way, but uh, we started putting these books together in 04, and every time we have an opportunity, we add to the the body of thought, and we've... uh, uh, I think we've helped a lot of people get strong. And uh, does it I'm, I'm does it feel lonely uh, just uh, standing on your tower, just screaming out about the uh, the message of strength? No, I don't take it personally. I understand how I understand about inertia. You know, if you're a famous strength coach and you've got your you've got your uh, you know whole deal centered around something stupid like rate of force development or something like that. You're not going to stop saying rate of force development and start saying, and start saying five pounds of workout. You're just not going to do it because it's made you money and you've, this is where you've built your tent, you know, <clears throat> and this is probably where you'll stay. And I don't, you know, I mean, everybody is entitled to be wrong. But, uh, but so here, here's the thing, like, um, everything has context, Mm -hmm. right? Like, um, you know, and this is what I always thought was amazing where all of a sudden, you know, people want to cast stones uh, towards starting strength. And I always go back to who's the population you're training, you know, all of a sudden everybody wants to think that like, you know, uh, because this guy trains NFL athletes, he must know about training bodybuilding in here. And like, I I see these people that are these generalist strength coaches, but they're talking about hypertrophy. I mean, I had a interesting conversation with Paul Carter about this. I mean, he trains hypertrophy and it's like, you know, women and glutes and he's kind of in this market. And, uh, he, he tells people when they ask him like, Hey, can I use this for performance? He's like, no, go see John the power athlete. He's like, that's right. not, that's not my market. Right. And like, well, I, at least he understands yeah, but, that. But, but even when, when uh, I had people come to us, I was like, Hey, you know what? Like uh, programs that we have that are hypertrophy based are still going to be based in kind of performance and athleticism. It's what we do. Right. Like all of a sudden you're not going to see me put out like a, a you, you know, know, a peach glute, uh, glute program for women. Like, you know, not that it wouldn't be a seller, but I just think that everybody is kind of in this, like, because you, you train people and people are getting better. There's this idea where it's this kind of homogenous deal and it's not. No, it's no, very segmented. All, if you don't understand that powerlifting and bodybuilding and Olympic weightlifting and strongman are not the same thing as strength training that we do, then you're, you're going to think that because I don't send people to the IPF worlds, that I don't know what I'm doing. But I don't want to send anybody to the IPF worlds. That's not my business. How many people get to go to the IPF worlds? A hundred? I don't care about a hundred people. I care about a hundred thousand people. I'm I'm not involved in this for competitive sports. That's not our demographic. We deal with regular human beings who benefit by being stronger than they are right now. Well, it's it's also um, what drives me crazy is where all of a sudden, you know, because somebody coaches powerlifters, they somehow think that, like, because they can coach powerlifters, that, that there's some transference to athletes. Yes. And I'm like, um, no, not you know. Th- and I used to think that for a long time. This is one of the hundreds of things I had wrong for years. 
It's not the same thing. Powerlifting is a, is a, a specific Pacific. sport. And you don't have to be explosive. No. Be a good powerlifter. You don't have to have a 35-inch vertical to be a good powerlifter. Yeah. It helps, but it's certainly not what you're displaying under a bar. That's not, that's not powerlifting. The name is wrong. It's not got anything to do with power. It's strength. Yeah. And, uh, no, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't deal with, with athletic specialties. I deal with general strength. Now it happens to be the case that athletics should begin with general strength. Yeah. And as a result, what we do is applicable to all of those people. But once they get past a certain, a certain point, I, I don't deal with them anymore. Yeah. But the problem is none of them realize that. None of them realize that the first nine months of preparation for any sport should be the linear progression where you well, add five pounds to your squat. And what we call it is a base level of strength. Right. And we found that if you establish this base level of strength, regardless of what you do going forward, if you get injured, you will always return back to this base Fast. level of strength. Right. So, I mean, it's pretty much like basically you're making a deposit in the bank. Right. And that money will continue to be there exactly. if you ever need it. That's your nest egg. And the problem is, is if athletes try to circumvent it and jump into a bunch of crazy shit and they don't create their base level of strength, mm -hmm. they never have that money to go right. back to. Exactly. And then they spend an entire lifetime Absolutely. chasing it and never having the durability and the strength. And never done. even understanding why they don't. Yeah. They don't understand. Look, if you had a 495 deadlift, we wouldn't be having this conversation about your back. You know, we wouldn't have to rehab your back because your back would never have been hurt. You know, if you if, if you don't press 250 overhead, yeah, your shoulders are vulnerable because 250 overhead for a good athlete is not a big press. That's baseline strength. Everybody ought to do that. Everybody ought, ought to have a 250 press, 325 bench, you know, 450 squat, five and a quarter deadlift. Everybody that's so playing sports. I saw a statistic the other day that uh, if you can bench over 225, you're like in the 0.01% of the population. That's unfortunate, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I, like I, I kind of laughed and uh, I was like, shit, man, like that can't be real. But then you realize like there's this, I mean, this, we, uh, we've effectively surrounded ourselves with like-minded individuals where we think this is just part of the deal. It's right. kind of the bubble I lived in the NFL mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm okay with that. And, you know, the more people we can pull into our circle and try to infect with the, uh, the belief like Greg Glassman, you virally infected the world into thinking it was better to be strong than elite. I'm more than happy to fucking shoulder that I, one. Sub, I, I gladly accept that accusation. Yeah, I was like, done. I'll take that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, anything else? That's all I've got. You've exhausted my ass today. Uh, we'll do it again, though. We got all kinds of stuff to talk about. Yeah, no, I, I'll take a drive up. I owe yeah. you a visit and come up and do your starting strength podcast. Absolutely, we'll we'll do it at my place next time. Awesome. Yeah, we'll just sit down and just talk. This is fun, and I think people listen to us uh, appreciate the perspective uh, from my forty-seven years of coaching and your lifetime spent actually playing at the elite level. It's, it's not they don't have access to that everywhere. Yeah, and that's good. Awesome. Well, I mean, uh, I'm, I know people want to get a hold of you. It's starting strength and startingstrength.com. That's where I am. Yeah, it's easy to find. Startingstrength.com, easy to find. 
Uh, books on Amazon. Books on Amazon. Books at our website. You get them faster from us than Amazon. Oh, I like that. Yep. Get cool. them faster. Well, cool. Well, thanks for making the trip. John, I love you, buddy. Yes, Thank sir. I love you. you, too. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks for tuning in another episode of Power Athlete Radio. This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, go to trainheroic.co forward slash powerathletehq.